good to see you. But I know while Bill was reading the scripture, someone already had the question in their mind, and we might as well address it. Didn't Lewis preach on this passage three weeks ago? And yeah, he sort of did, but no. That is really, I, Lewis was in Isaiah 5, verses 11 and 12, on one of the woes, the judgments upon Israel. And, uh, and he was speaking about that and the lack of watchfulness, sober-mindedness on Israel's part. And he went to go back to explain why is this judgment on Israel. And he went back to Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, to that image of the song of the vineyard there and the picture of God wanting this vineyard for himself. And the fact that Israel failed to produce that proper fruit that brought judgment. And he was looking at that judgment. But Lewis went on to say that judgment always is tempered with mercy. And he went back to our passage in John 15 to speak of mercy. And then he went on from there to other New Testament passages that spoke of serious mindedness. Sober minded living and that importance there. So really, no, he didn't preach on this passage, though he referred to it and dealt with it. And I want to use some of the things that he said as kind of a starting off point to get into this. And I know this passage is an important passage for a number of you. It's a passage where we go to sit, to dwell, to meditate, and we want to think. And I want to do some things to help deepen our understanding of this passage and our appreciation. And what I want to do by that is... is be as transparent as I can in the sense of I want to look at the biblical context or maybe we should say biblical contexts. There are a number one that set and identify meaning and fill the meaning in this passage. But as I would see our passage, John 15 is at the center of this bullseye and we have a series of other contexts out and around it that help fill this with meaning until we get those, we can't appreciate this passage as fully as we might. I would like to start, really, with that biggest context that Lewis gave us, the Bible context. And that's important because sometimes we have a tendency to go to a passage like this, pull it out as if it's all on its own, and read it. And we can move to that reflection, we can move to that sense of just resting in Jesus and peace in Jesus. But sometimes we too quickly make the passage about ourselves and we miss the big thing here. Because what's going on here is Jesus is making a very radical claim. If we catch that connection between our passage and Isaiah 5, a deep thing that Jesus is saying, that essentially what we have in going to that context is saying that God's desire that he would have his own people who would be faithful to him is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. God has always wanted a people. He wanted a people that would be faithful. And when Jesus identifies himself as this vine, he's identifying himself and those who abide in him as God's people. That's why that passage in Isaiah 5, the song of the vineyard, is so important. It's talking about God there in his vineyard. And it talked about he, he wanted this vineyard and he, he found a fertile 
a fertile hill to plant that on. He cleared the rocks and dug the field. He built a watchtower. He dug out, hewed out a vat or vats. And then he planted choice vines and he looked for choice fruit. But what he got was worthless fruit. That was the reason for judgment. And God can say, what more could I have done for my vineyard to have them produce what I wanted? But it didn't. And look what he wanted. He wanted justice. says he wanted righteousness. We're hearing those terms in the news, at least justice a lot lately. But it was God's desire that there would be justice and righteousness among his people. And remember that that justice of God always tilts in the favor of the needy, the poor, those who need comfort, the brokenhearted, widow, orphan, the alien, those who are oppressed. God wants them lifted up, says Isaiah, that they could experience being in this people of God as a place of grace. With that passage, see, Lewis was exactly right when he said Jesus didn't pick the idea of a vine accidentally. It was a very purposeful decision to choose that. And Jesus was taking this image among Israel that knew what the vine was because that Isaiah passage identified the vine as the people of Israel. And we have other prophetic statements, other um, prophets that identified Israel as that vine, and generally as that faithless vine. And so when John, I'm sorry, takes that image of the vine, he's taking an image that Israel knows stands for the people of God and saying, I am that vine. I am the true vine in comparison to any other. I'm the true, I'm the genuine vine. He's claiming that God's desire to have a people a faithful people, is fulfilled right here in Him. Through Him and those who abide in Him. See, it's not about us. It's not about us first. It is a proclamation about who Jesus is and His purpose in fulfilling God's ultimate purposes among us. Let's step back from that to the next ring, the next context in. From that broader one to one end where we're not considering biblical literature as a whole, but if we wanted to just consider the New Testament and the perspective there, because we need to test out if what I've just said fits. That is, it's easy to make a claim about this New New Testament passage and that Old Testament passage, but if we want to test that, we have to see, is that consistent with what we find in the New Testament? Because if it isn't, we may be dealing with a bad interpretation. And when we move to that New Testament perspective, I think it also argues that Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's redemptive purposes. Those promises, those intents of God are now fulfilled in the person of Jesus. impossible for us to run through the New Testament this morning. 
Maybe it's our homework. Homework of a lifetime as we start thinking and reading and putting this together. But let me do, what I'd like to do is maybe just bounce a stone just across the surface about places that tie in. See if this fits. I want you to think about the uh, series of sermons in 1 Peter that Lewis and Gary are doing. How many times already have we had this picture of fulfillment of Old Testament things in the person of Jesus? Even from the beginning verses of 1 Peter, and as you continue through, we've dealt with fulfillment. What if you went to the book of Hebrews? Is not that fulfillment when we're talking about the sacrifices and the priesthood in the Old Testament and how they are fulfilled through the superiority of the sacrifice and priesthood of Jesus? And then there's Paul. It would be kind of hard to slog through Paul in a short time. But again, a couple of bounces on the surface. I'd start with Romans 10.4. that says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for those who believe. An end has many interpretations, but I would think the one that I think is really right here is he is the goal. Christ was always the goal of the law. It was always pointing forward to him. And you'll see some other interpretations, but they're just silly and wrong. And so, no, study them. Study them. Drop by to 2 Corinthians 1.20. And Paul says, As many as or all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Go a step back to Galatians 3.15 and 16. There Paul is dealing with legalism. That righteousness is not by works but by faith and we're dealing in the midst of that argument that Paul is dealing with and he goes to the argument from Abraham to say there was a covenant made with Abraham and the promise was made to Abraham and his seed his offspring and he says nothing else like the law that came 43 years later could change that because when a covenant is made it stands someone else can't come in and change it But that covenant, he says, was made to Abraham and his seed, his offspring. And he says, seed or offspring is one. It doesn't say seeds or offsprings, many. He says, but it says seed one, who is Jesus Christ. The whole intent, Paul is saying, is if you go back to Abraham and the covenant with Abraham that was going to be made to him and to his offspring... Jesus said that always pointed to that singular offspring or seed, Jesus Christ. That New Testament picture, I think, supports this whole idea that Jesus stands as the fulfillment of all God's redemptive purposes. Let's go down one more ring. Instead of just the New Testament, the Gospel of John itself. I want to see, is this consistent? Does it tie in with what John is doing? And I would suggest that a a reading John shows that John is packed with these ideas of fulfillment and it seems to picture Jesus as the fulfillment, the fulfillment of the life of Israel and the fulfillment of all its feasts and festivals. 
I would like to weave together a little bit three things that come in, John, as he moves in. That in that public ministry, we start with that prologue and then we move to the public ministry that's right after the prologue in 119 through the end of chapter 12, and that's the public ministry. We get about 12 chapters then about this three to three and a half years of Jesus' time. And then we will get that eight chapters of this final preparation of the disciples where we find John 15, the crucifixion, the resurrection. So we go back to the, this time in June and his public ministry. And what we find are these three things I wanted to weave together a little bit. We got Jesus' signs and his teaching. The signs are always referring to the miracles. They're called signs as they point to a greater reality than just the miracle. It points to who Jesus is. And we get his teaching that is often aligned with that. It comes in that context very often. And through his teaching, we understand what is meant by that sign. Sometimes tied in with those signs are Jesus' I am statements. I'm the light of the world. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the good shepherd. I am the way and the truth and the life. All of those are statements about who Jesus is. Proclamation of his meaning and his purpose in God's plans. And so when we get to the last I am in John 15, I am the true vine. We would expect that also to be a proclamation about Jesus. A revelation about Jesus. And thirdly, we get these festivals, the Jewish festivals that celebrate what God did in their life. And what we'll see is time after time, Jesus is portraying himself as the fulfillment of what that feast was celebrating. My class in the Gospel of John is going to be an advertisement. If you're not part of a class, when we start them up again, come join us. We just left out of John 6 where it indicates in John 6 that it was at the time of the Passover. Okay, again, remembering that redemption and wandering in the, wandering in the wilderness. And Jesus is not at that feast, but he's up in Galilee, and it says they're away where they couldn't buy food for the people. There were no towns that they could really buy that, essentially in a wilderness. And Jesus feeds the 5,000, the 5,000 men, and the unnumbered number of women and children. And after that is done, we've got that sign about this feeding in the context of Passover. And that night, Jesus will walk on the water. And the next day, those people come to find Jesus. And Jesus says, you're coming not because you saw the sign. You didn't understand what it said. You just came to be fed. And the discussion moves then to the manna that was provided. If Jesus seems to be this prophet like Moses, well, Moses gave us bread in the wilderness. And Jesus would tell him, no, Moses did not give you bread. My Father is giving you the bread from heaven. I am the true bread. I am the genuine bread that comes down and gives life to the world. That is, in the context of a Passover feast, Jesus talks about him being the one who now provides this bread that sustains. Moses' bread would sustain you for a day. This is what will sustain you for eternal life. And we left off there. And when class comes back, we'll move into chapters 7 and 8, which are at the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. The celebration of the living in that wilderness and the booze, the tabernacles that they would throw up and live in.
And at that feast, um, there were two main celebrations, two main things that went on. And one was a water pouring ceremony. They grabbed water from the pool of Siloam and it was walked up and walked around the altar and they poured that out. And it was a special thing on the last day. It was a little more elaborate thing. But what was that recalling? The water ceremony was to recall God providing water in the wilderness. God providing for their basic needs. And in that context, Jesus stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. We get that quote about out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And John will tell us parenthetically, he was talking about the Holy Spirit. It hadn't been given yet. So they're, they're celebrating this festival and celebrating it by water. And Jesus promises to give them living water, the Holy Spirit, that will sustain forever. And the other thing they had at, the, at that ceremony was the last day of the feast was the light setting ceremony, lighting ceremony. That uh, there were huge candelabras, basins of oil set up in the temple. They said Israel just glowed in the mountains from all the light that was set up. Josephus said, someone has not seen joy in their life unless they've seen the way this is lit up. And it was to celebrate the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke in the wilderness where God led his people. In the context, what does Jesus stand up and say? I am the light of the world. We're celebrating God as a pillar of fire and what he did. And Jesus stands up and said, I am the light of fire. Light of the, sorry, light of the world. As just reading in Nehemiah, um, in Nehemiah 9 sets up after the people have returned, this first tabernacle. He says, remind them, they're going to celebrate three things. The providing of manna in the wilderness, that God provided water from the rock, and that God was present as a pillar of smoke and fire. <laughs> Sounds kind of like John 6, 7, and 8, doesn't it? Manna, water, fire, light. Jesus stands, and we run, as we run through John and his presentation of Jesus, we see this fulfillment theme all the way there. And then let's narrow down to that last part. We get this major section from verses 13 to 20, where now the public ministry is behind him, and we're going to get eight chapters on just this final preparation of the disciples. And Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection... And this overall context, I think, adds a sense of depth, a sense of weight to the words that we find in chapter 15. Look at the way that starts in 13.1 uh, as we move into the section. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world and to the Father. Two things set the context for Jesus knew that his hour had come, and this was in the context of the feast of Passover. We've heard in John's gospel before this that his hour was coming. He's talked about his hour, and certain things can and can't happen because his hour is not yet. We recognize the seriousness, especially when we get to John 12, 27. 
And Jesus says, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus knows exactly what lies before him. And think of the words then that he's going to speak as he moves to deal with his disciples, the final things he has to say to them. Besides this hour, though, it says the Passover, the, fe- the Passover was near, the feast of the Passover. And we get this picture actually in John again that Jesus is fulfilling that Passover. He's going to die as the Passover lamb. We go back to John 21, John 1, 29. And John the Baptist speaks out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John has pointed out, Jesus is this Lamb. In that context, it's a sacrificial Lamb to deal with sin. And then we move to John 19 at the crucifixion. And the soldiers move. They don't want to leave the bodies on the crosses over into the Sabbath. So they go to break legs. And they break legs of the other two people to hasten their death. And they come to Jesus and they're surprised that he'd already died. And so they did not break his legs. And John tells us this happened to fill the scripture that not a bone of his would be broken. Where have you heard that before? In Exodus, the original Passover meal, one of the requirements for that lamb is that not a bone would be broken. And then over in Numbers 4, when we get the commandment and the requirements for the future celebration of the Passover, that that Passover lamb, a requirement, not a bone will be broken. Jesus is dying right here as the Passover lamb. That is, it doesn't add us new content. But think of the weight that this adds to Jesus' words. You've hit a point where he knows he has a few hours for this final preparation with his disciples. He knows his death is so imminent. It's hours away. What do you say to them? How weighty are those words? How urgent? And then we move down to the smaller context. After 13, there's been the foot washing, the betrayal by Judas. And we move into what's called a farewell discourse, where we have four chapters laid out where Jesus' last instructions. Really three chapters worth of instructions, and then at chapter 17, that prayer. If we think of those things, that context of how weighty are these words, what do you do to prepare? And in this context, I would suggest that when we get to our chapter 15, we're dealing with a great intermixture of what Jesus is saying and his teaching about the Holy Spirit. They come together. That is, our chapter 15 falls between chapter... I'm sorry, chapter 15 falls between 14, which is on the Holy Spirit, and 16 on the Holy Spirit. It falls in that context. And it's interesting... You look at John 15, if you look at it, it's an important passage and it talks about his biting, but the Holy Spirit is never mentioned in that passage. It's not there. But it suggests that the Holy Spirit's fingerprints are all over that passage. 
And it is speaking about the Holy Spirit. Because we've got it in the middle of 14 and 16. And the 14, and I love Fred, Fred Craddock's picture of this that starts in the thir- chapter 13 through 14, is he pictures this like some kids playing on the floor. Their blocks and toys are all around, and they look up, and they see Dad putting on his coat, Mom grabbing her purse. Three questions. Where are you going? Can we go too? Who's going to stay with us? I'm going to the Father. No, you can't go now, but you will go later. Ah, let me tell you about who's staying with you. His name is sometimes called the comforter or counselor or advocate. He's the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth who has been with you, but will be in you. Later goes on to say, and my Father and I will come and make a home with you. Chapter 14 is all about the Spirit. Chapter 16 is about the Spirit. And in fact, many of the things that said about the Spirit say the same things as talking about that abiding in chapter 15. So we have a choice, really, interpretation. Either we take this as all a discussion about the Holy Spirit from chapter 14 through 15 and 16, and we understand that to get into chapter 15, while the Holy Spirit is not mentioned, he is just reframing this. He's talking about this in different terms. He's talked about the Spirit who will come and who will abide in you, but now he talks about it from the framework. What does this mean about our relationship with Jesus and abiding in him? How has that changed? And it gets into the fact that we'll be abiding in Jesus. It is not an aggression away from the talk of the Spirit. It's a reframing. It's saying the same things in different terms to help understand what this abiding work of the Spirit is. It is abiding in Jesus. It is abiding in His love. The other option is just to say, Jesus starts talking in chapter 14 about the Holy Spirit. Then he changes topic in chapter 15 and he starts about talking about some other abiding that's not related to that. And then he kind of, oh yeah, we're on the Spirit. Let's go back to the Spirit for chapter 16. And it becomes a digression. I think it's a single flow through there. And that we understand as we read chapter 15 in the context of all he says about the Spirit in chapter 14 and 16. This abiding in Jesus, abiding in his love is very intimately tied in with what we talk about the Holy Spirit and his abiding in us. So we come down now and looked at these bigger contexts and the light they start shedding on our passage and we look at that and obviously I haven't left myself much time to talk about the passage which is going to be some of your work, your homework. Read that passage. And read that passage in 14 and through 16 in the context. And read the greater thing. Read the whole book of John. See how it all ties in. But two things I want to touch on. And one is about abiding. One is about bearing fruit. When you think of abiding, what do you think of? Very often... We move to this kind of passive, I am resting in Jesus. It is warm, it is comfortable, it's a good place to be. 
And certainly that's part of this. We can't, experiencing and enjoying the presence of Jesus is a good thing. But if we look at this, down to verse 4, abide. It's an imperative. It is a command. We are commanded to do this. Abide in me. Now we've got a problem. We don't create the abiding, do we? It's the Holy Spirit and Jesus who do the abiding. And he says, spiritually, on your own, you can do nothing. But we're commanded to abide. We're in one of those situations where we're commanded to do something that we are not able to do. And I would say as an analogy, run to Romans 12.2, where he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You're said to be imperative. Be transformed. But it's in the passive. You're being trans- Somebody else or something else is transforming you. And you look at that kind of be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And renewal, if you look in Paul's usage, it seems to usually tie into the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit that's doing the renewal. But we're commanded... And the only way I make sense out of that is to move it to something like this, that allow yourselves to be transformed. Let yourselves be transformed. This is the Holy Spirit's work, but the command says we have something to do with this. There may be a clearing of the way, an opening up things so the Spirit can do His work. There is a command and we do something while the Spirit is transforming, we are opening ourselves up, moving those things out of the way. And God's guidance, we remove those things that would stand in the way of the Spirit transforming us. Paul will tell the Thessalonians, do not quench the Spirit. We have that possibility. Apparently, it's a command not to do that. So apparently, we can quench the Spirit. There is that possibility that the Spirit is there and we can put that fire of the Spirit out. Whether we would really be called to fan the flames of that Spirit. And ultimately, that's what I think we're talking about here with abiding. Or at least one aspect of that is the abiding is something that is sustained by the Holy Spirit. It's sustained by the life of Jesus flowing from the vine to the branch. And what's our part in that? Opening the way? Following the leading of God as he shows us what stands in the way of a deeper, a fuller abiding? That we don't do it, but we maybe clear the path. We, we don't bring the feast, but maybe we're setting the table preparing, allowing the Spirit to move in us this deeper abiding. At least some part of that abiding is that command to do something. And what do we do? So we need to be hearing and being open and allowing God to show us what things need to get out of the way. And then bearing fruit. In one sense, it's all about the fruit. The whole purpose of growing the vine 
Abiding is to bring fruit. And God wants the choice fruit. You'll hear some arguments about what that fruit is. And one writer will say, the fruit is this. And somebody say, no, it's this. Or somebody, no, it's not those. It's over here. This is what he means by fruit. And I just suggest for this passage, I see no reason to limit it to one or two things. I see it as a very broad thing because here basically we're saying is the fruit is that which is being produced in the believer's life because of abiding in Jesus. Anything that is being brought out in us that is godly, that is Christ-like, should be considered fruit, I think. I mean, some go to this, and as soon as you ask somebody, what's this fruit in this passage? What's the fruit of abiding here? And you think automatically to Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. I would include that here. Why not? Somebody say, well, that's not John's idea, but actually in our passage, we'll find love coming up. I've written these things. You have joy. Previous chapter, he said, peace, my peace I give to you. Love, joy, and peace are in our general context. So why don't they fit as part of the fruit? How about sanctification? The process of the removal of sin from our lives. I don't have time, but in verses 2 and 3, when it talks about God pruning the branches. Those branches that are bearing fruit. It talks about him pruning. And it's interesting that word is mostly used for cleansing, but when it's used in agriculture, it becomes pruning. So we got a word that means either pruning or cleansing. And then Jesus, then uh, John goes on and he says that you are clean, which seems to move in a word that's tied into ceremonial connections about cleanliness with regard to sin. So God's cleansing, I would take as part of the sanctification process. Would not that be fruit? The work of God removing sin from our lives. And wouldn't we have to include that image from Isaiah 5 at the beginning that God wanted justice and righteousness and our call to be lifting up others with us, to that justice of God, to the outcast, to walking like Jesus, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, those who understand their need of a doctor, to raise them up to experience this as grace. It's interesting in the context of all of this fruit, and I would open it up to all of these things, John seems to kind of funnel down a little and shift a little. We're talking about fruit and vine and abiding, but eventually down at verse 10, he's talking about keeping commandments, that obedience would have to be part of that fruit. But it's interesting what he says here in verse 10. He said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So the keeping of commandments then are tied into that obedience. But one thing that John does, it's typical kind of John, and a few times he says this, and it's once over in 1 John, when John, first John is saying um, we need to keep his commandments, is that each time when Jesus says, keep my commandments, he doesn't tell us what they are. Keep my commandments. It's not said. But in each case, within a verse or two, he says, 
This is my commandment. As we find here down, what is it, in verse 12. As we move into this next section. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Keep my commandments. There's a funneling down, it says. There are commandments. There are all of these things. There's commandments. But it all comes down, John says, to keep my commandment that you love. It seems to be there time after time in John that it all comes down for the disciple in terms of love. And at the end of this whole section, we get into, say, uh, down to verse 17. These things I command you. seems to talk about all of this so that you love one another. It seems to funnel down. There's a lot of fruit. There are things like obedience. Obey his commandments, and then it comes down to this one commandment, that you love one another. And I feel like I'm pretty good now. I've got this settled. I know what's going on in this passage, but if you look at verse 16, we get... You didn't choose me, but I chose you that you would go and bear much fruit. That sounds like mission talk, doesn't it? You got to go and you got to bear fruit. So now we're, we've got these two things going on. We've got this love and we've got the command to go and bear fruit. We think of life in terms of inside the church, that community of love, but a mission outside it's funny sometimes how context works. You keep going a little bit and you go through John 16 and in 17 you get to Jesus' prayer where he prays first for himself, his glorification with the Father. And then he prays for the disciples and he goes on and prays for those who believe in their word, the next generations. And what does he say? He prays for their unity. Where does that come from? Our love. Praise for their unity. And twice he says that they would be one so that the world may know that you sent me. The world is going to judge whether Jesus has actually come from the Father based on the love, the community that we are called to exhibit. Interesting, for John here, it is love that actually fulfills that mission. They're not two separate things. The mission is to go outside, but how does that happen? It only happens if there is this community of love and the world can look in and see that. And that's the thing for John. It seems, it seems for John, it is always coming down to love. So much so that we can tell if we're abiding. We can know where we are in our abiding and our spiritual life in a simple statement or question. Am I, over time, becoming more and more loving in attitude and action? There's the decisive marker for us. Am I progressively becoming a more loving person? If not, there's something wrong with our abiding because that is what the abiding needs to lead to. The decisive mark for us, it seems in John, 
is that love for one another. And notice in, in, uh, in chapter 15, in this section, two times the result of abiding is answered prayer. It's prayer that flows out of this abiding in Jesus, abiding in his love. And that's the kind of prayer we know will be answered. Something like, Father, work in me. Father, work in me your love. Show me what needs to be removed. Help me clean this out. Show me how to be open to allow your spirit to work in me. And Father, you need to do this because I myself can do nothing. Let's pray. Our Father, how gracious you are to us, how good you are to count us as your people. And we look at that awesome task that you've called us to, to be a transformed people, a people that would know you through our love. And we recognize, Father, that that only will happen if we yield to you and you can work your love through us. And we pray that you do that in the name of Jesus.